0: We left the apostles last week still waiting, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They waited obediently, they waited prayerfully, and they applied Scripture to their situation to plan as far as they could while waiting. Pick up with me, please, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And Peter said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Peter continues, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And also let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two: Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I mentioned at the outset of our study in Acts that We will have to strive to be discerning as to how to apply what we find in these pages to our lives because of the foundational and transitional nature of apostolic ministry. We're immediately met with just such a situation here following the ascension of our Lord while the apostles and fellow disciples wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to empower them. In spite of the uniqueness, we said this last week too, in spite of the uniqueness of their specific situation and outcomes, there are principles that we can derive from the pattern of their practice that can serve as a model for our own posture and our own behavior in waiting on God's promise. Whether it is our entire lives as we wait for the ultimate promise of eternal rest in the presence of God... And you are only a person waiting on that promise if you have placed your faith only in Jesus Christ, the Lord, to restore you to fellowship to the Father. And then among the people of God whom he has chosen, you are waiting for the promise of eternal rest. Or we might apply this to other situations in our lives. We're waiting for clarifying wisdom on difficult issues. Or maybe as you're suffering, you're waiting on refreshing from the Lord. The first thing that the apostles did as they're waiting is that they immediately obeyed what Jesus told them to do. So we discussed that last week in verses 12 and 13. We also wait on the Lord by obeying. And then even while waiting, they weren't idle. The primary thing that they seem to have invested themselves in during this 10-day waiting period, and they didn't know it was only going to be 10 days, They invested themselves together with the other disciples in prayer. So we wait on the Lord by praying. They were devoting themselves to prayer continually, and they were unified in it. Last week, we also defined prayer as talking to God in submission and dependence. Prayer is talking to God in submission and dependence. Well, we left off needing to come back to the end of verse 14 and and answer the following question, which I've now combined with verse 15 for you this week. So before we go into verses 15 and following, or 16 to 26, we need to answer this question. Who are the others that were praying with the apostles? And who are all these others who were present then for the decision to fill the void left by Judas? Notably... It says the women, the faithful female disciples were there, including Jesus' own mother, Mary. You probably have noted that we never hear of Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, during the public ministry of Jesus, which leads us to conclude that he had passed away from the scene. So this is also the final time that Mary is mentioned by name. And that may mean that during this early season of the ministry of the apostles... She dies to go and be with the Lord. But what an amazing life Mary lived. Just pause for a second and reflect on the life that Mary lived. From the announcement of the Savior's conception and Mary's humble acceptance of God's plan, may it be to me as you have said, according to your word. Then to raise Jesus in her home, And later, to watch him live out the fulfillment of messianic promise with miraculous signs corroborating his message of the kingdom's arrival. The unbearable pain of watching him die. And the unbelievable reversal of that tragic end, Jesus rising from the dead and appearing to them. And Mary almost certainly lived to experience the coming of the Holy Spirit in power at Pentecost to launch the church of Christ. What a life Mary lived. What do you walk away with scripturally about God and about us from the life and testimony of Mary? I'd encourage you to think of more things than this and and to write them down so that you can pray about them, so you can talk about them with other people. But I'll just give a couple of quick examples What do we walk away with about the life and testimony of Mary? The reality and the rich blessing of God's sovereign choosing. God chose Mary. God chooses us not because of something he sees in us, but because of his own good pleasure. And then he shapes us into what he wants us to be. God sovereignly chose Mary, and we trust our God. Also, the right response of submissive service from Mary yes, Lord, I'll do what you ask. And then as we continue, the other women here that Luke speaks of likely included both the women who had been present that we talked about in Luke, who were present at the crucifixion and present at the resurrection, and now too, probably the wives of the disciples. Remember that we know Peter was married. We know that Clopas was married, one of the two on the road to Emmaus. And so likely the several of the wives of these men are present as well. I want to say about these other women that I absolutely love that Luke, in both his gospel and in Acts, Luke takes pleasure in noting both the faithfulness and the essential contributions of women in ministry as disciples of Jesus. Luke is honest, and he honors the role of women. What Luke doesn't do, though... Luke doesn't unseat the clear instruction and biblical pattern of complementary roles for men and women in the home and in the church. This is so difficult and indeed awkward for us in our culture. And yet the accusation that's leveled against us is ludicrous that holding these biblical guidelines is chauvinism. Because if there was ever a time where it would be much easier for us to cave to the cultural climate, it would be now. We take so much heat over this that it, wouldn't, that it just wouldn't be worth it, except for the simple fact that we submit to the plain teaching of the Bible as God's word. What God says is good, and we trust that his design for order is good, producing good fruit in our lives for his glory. So what do you walk away with scripturally from the life and testimony of the female disciples? Ladies especially, I encourage you to think of more and to tell me more, but I'll just go from the last thing that I said. We believe God's design is good, full stop. We obey God's pattern for order because it is for our own good and his glory. And then secondly, we need to honor and promote the ministry of you ladies among us in every way that we can. And then, like Mary, Jesus brothers and sisters, we know that he had some, mark six three, like Mary, Jesus brothers would have had a unique experience in growing up with their eldest half-brother who was the perfect Son of God in human flesh. I'll let you imagine what that must have been like. We learn, as I said, from mark six three and then by comparison to Matthew 13 verses 55 and 56 That Jesus had four brothers, and he had at least two sisters because it's plural. So he had at least two sisters. They're not mentioned by name, perhaps more. But his brothers were James, who would later become the leader of the church in Jerusalem and probably the author of the letter of James in your Bible. He had another brother named Joseph, or Joseph. And his two youngest brothers were named Simon and Judas the latter of these two would become known to us as Jude and the author of the short and bold letter by that name, Jude. At the onset of Jesus' public ministry, his own siblings did not believe that he was the Messiah, at least not as fully committed followers. John informs us in his gospel in chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. But when we... Hear of them again here in Acts, after Jesus' death and his resurrection and exaltation. They have made a 180-degree turn and are following hard after Jesus with his chosen apostles. So what do you walk away with scripturally from the life and testimony of Jesus' siblings? The Lordship of Jesus Christ is transformative. The gospel is transformative. He changes us. There is no one foot in and one foot out with acceptance and confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, Romans 10:9. If you think you're partly on board, you're not on board. If you think you're partly on board with Jesus, you are not on board. This is not a docked ship. Are you picturing that? There you are straddling the dock in the ship. It's not a docked ship. This ship is journeying toward eternal rest with God. You're on it, or you're still floundering in the waves thinking that you got this, but you do not. The Lordship of Jesus Christ changes us, and we're all in or we're not in. Finally, in verse 15, the pattern in the first 15 chapters of Acts is that Peter naturally became the spokesman for the apostles. This is not to say he didn't submit to the group, but rather that he simply became the lead representative, the most prominent speaker for the team. And this issue is relevant in the immediate context as we continue, because although Peter is the one who speaks to the whole group, it seems reasonable enough to conclude that what he says actually comes from the collaborative effort of the 11 together. Not only is it made clear in the pastoral epistles then, but here we have the pattern of a plurality of leadership at work in the earliest days of the church, the apostles working together. Again, like the apostles do here, we must wait on the Lord in obedience, in prayer, and we wait on the Lord Verses 16 to 26, we wait on the Lord by applying scriptural principles to guide our plans. Where the apostles planned ahead by replacing an apostate apostle according to scriptural prophecy, we apply this in our preparation and planning for things ahead of us, primarily according to scriptural principle. We'll see that develop as we go along. But before we get into too many details of this section, we need to step back and address the elephant in the room. Was this direction and decision from the Lord? Do you wonder that? Think about it. Why hadn't Jesus already done this? There were 11, and if they needed 12, why didn't Jesus do it? Tell yourself, honestly, that's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? So some people have chosen to conclude that this was actually not directed by God, but as we shall see, Luke gives every indication that this is positive. This is exactly what God desired for them to do. And it's clear, since Jesus didn't address this before his ascension, but it's clear as we look at the gospels that Jesus chose 12 apostles to be symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And how far to carry that symbolism can be debated, but we can at least see the deliberate connection. Twelve apostles, twelve tribes of Israel. Most likely, the twelve symbolize a believing remnant in Israel that Jesus himself chose to represent his new covenant, to show that where Israel failed in the past to represent God to the world, this new phase of the kingdom could not fail to do so because jesus is the perfect representative for israel and now it will be the very power of god himself using the church to represent himself to the world but that still doesn't answer then if if the number 12 is helpfully symbolic at this initiating stage why the lord didn't replace judas before he left we must answer honestly that we don't know perhaps He did so for this very reason, that the disciples would need to prayerfully depend on God, and they would need to work together, consulting the Scripture to determine a direction. Perhaps, too, then, we become the beneficiaries of seeing this pattern of their practice in order to model our own after them. Viewed as a whole, again, the evidence clearly suggests that this action was pleasing to the Lord. They reached this conclusion with much prayer. In the counsel of the group and by consulting the scriptures, finally, God supplied the answer. And while it may be the case that the Holy Spirit was not yet permanently indwelling them, that in no way precludes the Holy Spirit's assistance, just as God had done many times before in in empowering Old Testament believers for a particular purpose. Every indication from Luke is that this is to be viewed positively, that this direction and decision is indeed from the Lord. Now, how do the apostles come to a decision? Peter will explain first from Scripture, quoting Davidic Psalms. Now, I'm gonna in this paragraph, I'm gonna summarize the whole thing for you. So, uh, and then we'll get back into specifics. But so, first, Peter quotes Davidic Psalms with the apostles' conclusion that Judas's betrayal was not a surprise or accident, but was within the sovereign purposes of God. Judas's apostasy fulfilled scripture. Secondly, and also from scripture, Peter provides the reasoning for seeking a replacement. And then the requirement for the replacement is essentially that he be a fellow disciple who has been an eyewitness to the whole of Jesus' ministry. From the time of his baptism by John, which initiated the public ministry of Jesus, to his resurrection appearances, the person had to be a witness of that full ministry of Jesus. Then they pray still more for confirmation from God, and he supplies the answer by choosing Matthias to replace Judas, completing the 12. Now I'm going to ask you, as I go into the specifics, how should we plan as we wait on God to act? To our detriment, we sometimes, some of us perhaps often, make plans in our personal lives without a smidgen, without an ounce of consideration for what God might have us do in order to please him. Making plans for our money, making plans for college, making plans for our children, making plans for employment, and the list could go on. How much worse if we should be making plans as spiritual leaders with worldly goals instead of godly ones, not in accordance with his word. How should we plan as we wait on God to act? Well, the apostles knew that the scriptures are the very word of God. We must search them and submit to them. Let me show you where I get this. First, look at the clarity with which we are told that God speaks through the scriptures. What clearer statement to the divine inspiration of the Bible do we have than this in verse 16 when Peter says, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. A thousand years earlier, God foretold this. Peter follows this up later in a letter to the churches. In 2 Peter 1.21, he explains it this way, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man... But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul will call that, in 2 Timothy 3.16, he will call that breathed out by God in reference to the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. And if you remember that here they're quoting Old Testament scriptures, you should be aware that Peter in the same letter, this same letter, 2 Peter, he says, he speaks of the writings of the apostle Paul and he equates them with other scriptures, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. So first, what we're saying is God speaks through the scriptures. We seek to understand God, ourselves, and our world through what God has revealed in the scriptures and particularly through the lens of the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we search them, we study them, we submit to them, we memorize them, we meditate on them. Secondly, we have learned nothing from the Old Testament scriptures unless we come to see that whatever God says, he will do. Peter explains, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. What God prophesies will come to pass. God does what he says he will do. And then if you go to the conclusion of that statement, Peter completes the thought. The scripture had to be fulfilled. Go a little bit further down. The scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, very specifically concerning Judas. Judas's apostasy was a fulfillment of typological prophecy that comes from Psalm 69, verse 25, which Peter quotes in verse 20a. So the beginning of verse 20, you see those two quotes? That's where Peter quotes Psalm 69. The psalm that he quotes not only has connection to messianic fulfillment in Jesus as the righteous sufferer, that's the connection, Jesus as the righteous sufferer, but here in that same psalm, we see the contextual connection that of the enemy of the righteous sufferer and that that enemy of the righteous sufferer will be destroyed. May his camp become desolate, so desolate that nobody wants to live there. Peter also quotes Psalm 109 verse 8 there in the second half of verse 20, where again, the context is the context in Psalm 109 is the enemy who brings false accusation against the righteous this here applying the type of David's own prayer to the perfectly righteous one, Jesus Christ. So it is said of the false accuser, may his days be few, may another take his office. May this false accuser have, may his days be cut short, and may another take his office. Judas's days were indeed cut short, in fact, by his own hand. Matthew 27, three through 10 we learn that Judas felt guilty when he saw that Jesus was condemned and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. And then he went out and hanged himself. The chief priests used Judas's money, this blood money, to buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, which apparently was the very field where Judas died and became known as the field of blood. So in Luke's Digression here in Acts to explain Judas's fate, he emphasizes that the very field was bought with Judas's own betrayal money. Luke also adds the gory detail that might partly explain the name that sticks with the field, not only because it was bought with blood money, but because apparently Judas's body fell and burst open and his bowels gushed out. Not only are the accounts not contradictory, but when we take the accounts together, we have a detailed and gory description of Judas's destruction. First, we said God speaks through the scriptures. Second, God does what he says he will do. Third, this explanation from Peter is clearly for the purpose of explaining that nothing is outside the sovereign will of God. Pause for a second. And remember the things that are happening in your life right now. Nothing is outside the sovereign will of God. Peter explains that Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Even Judas's betrayal, his apostasy, was ordained within the will of God to accomplish his ultimate purpose for the Lord Jesus Christ to die and rise again. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he chose Judas. And then instead of Judas's disobedience halting the advance of the kingdom, it was within divine control to carry forward salvation history. To be clear then, they don't replace Judas because he died, but because of his apostasy. Verse 17 says, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Judas was one of us, but what happened? from which, the second half of verse 25, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Not because he died, but because he was apostate, do they replace Judas. When James is martyred later in Acts 12, verse 2, they take no action to replace him. These are the 12 foundational leaders. And yes, the apostle Paul is named a a very unique apostle, as if one untimely born, he calls himself. But these Foundational 12 are not replaced in perpetuity. There are unique apostles given by God for this time. And as we shall see, uniquely men who experienced the ministry of Jesus with eyewitness testimony attest to his resurrection from the dead. But as we continue, this is what we've said. God speaks through the scriptures. God does what he says he will do. And God sovereignly controls all things. Basically, what we're saying for ourselves is that Scripture provides all the boundaries that we need. We can't make plans that please God but run at odds with what God says in the Bible. We can't claim that the Holy Spirit is leading us in a direction that runs afoul of what God the Holy Spirit himself breathed out in sacred Scripture. I must bring even my feelings into submission to what the Holy Spirit teaches in the Word of God. God's character and command in Scripture provides the clear boundaries. So sound doctrine that summarizes scriptural teaching is thus extremely helpful to us for helping us have clarity. This is what God teaches in His Word. So long as we remember that said doctrine ultimately submits to Scripture. Even so, we submit our strategy, trying to make some kind of plans. We have the boundaries of God's word, but we then have to submit our strategy to the Holy Spirit's guidance, still independent prayer, and in consultation with others. Let me show you how that's in the verses as well. But I want to remind you first that all of this planning, this strategizing, only applies to things that are not explicitly covered by command that we are already given that we need to obey. For example... The apostles were already obeying the clear command to wait for the Holy Spirit. They couldn't not do that. And they can't make any plans that run contrary to the character of God or any strategy that isn't submissive, first of all, to loving God, to loving one another by the command of Jesus, or any strategy um, that isn't compassionately loving toward the others who are still outside of Christ. They couldn't make any plans that are for the purpose of glorifying themselves because Jesus had told them that they must follow his example and humbly lay down their lives for the good of others to the glory of God's own great name. But having understood scriptural prophecy, their strategy was to select men who had been eyewitnesses to the whole of Jesus' public ministry from his baptism to his ascension and then they narrowed it down to two. Joseph called Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath, who had another name called Justice, and the other person, Matthias, who apparently had less nicknames, which is reason enough right there to choose him. I'm just kidding. But then they prayed, and they let the Lord choose for them. And again, what did we say? Here we have this transitional phase in ministry of the apostles. This is the last time this ever happens that we know of. But they used the Old Testament method of casting lots, which we believe were perhaps stones that were marked accordingly in a cauldron or in a cup, or we would do it in a hat, right? And they would ask for the Lord to bless and give them an answer. And God had many times in the Old Testament sanctioned this and he gave them an answer. I choose Matthias. You know, it's weird for us to think of it, them doing this, because to us, that's kind of like, you know, Dustin comes to me and Tim and says, one of you is going to do this, and so we draw straws. Tim, you got the short straw. You're up. It feels a bit like that to us, but God had specifically sanctioned the use of casting lots, and he gave answers through this method. But as I mentioned, it's never mentioned again. Why is that? Because of this transitional phase where we're no longer going to pray and cast lots or draw straws for God to reveal his will. Once they receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have no record of the apostles or of other believers ever using this method again. Instead, in prayer and in consultation, they follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because we ourselves are so finite, we're so finite in our knowledge, and we're prone to sin, we too seek God's leading in prayer and in the counsel of fellow believers who are themselves prayerfully, genuinely submitting to the authority of God's word. If you find that the company you keep is glaringly unsubmissive to the plain commands or patterns in God's word, you must seek new affiliations. That's bold, isn't it? If you find that the company you keep is glaringly unsubmissive to the plain commands or patterns in God's word, you must seek new affiliations. But if by God's grace He has brought you to serve among true believers who display a lifestyle of following the sound teaching of God's word, you then need to both to be both submissive and helpful submit to the leaders, also be helpful to them. In other words, if you see something, you do need to bring it to their attention and you need to be teachable and flexible. Be teachable. You can't assume that you're right all the time. I cannot assume that I'm right all the time. It brings me to tears to be able to say that God has brought me to a place where I am comfortable submitting to the leadership of your church. and I have to be teachable. And we have to be flexible. What if it doesn't go exactly the way that we prefer? Right? I'll just give you the most glaring example that we all think of in our churches. You know, we care a lot about the style of the songs that we sing. (laughs) You know, and in a church, by God's grace, we have people with wisdom and silver hair, and we have kids among us, probably about 80 of them, right? Right? I'm not not exaggerating. If you go back there and count, you may count 60 to 80 children. If you count teenagers as children. Sorry, Emma. So what do we do? We balance our preferences in accordance to concern for one another, don't we? The older ones among you are so gracious to the younger ones, knowing that someday all of this is being passed on to you. And so we want the solid lyrics of God's word to be something that you want to sing and that you love. And the younger generation, we desire for you to learn to not be thoughtless of those who are older than you and to not be concerned for what they like and what they appreciate, right? And so, awkwardly, I'll admit that that's why our little church doesn't have services that one is classic and one is n- non-traditional. <laughs> we, just, we just want to be thoughtful of each other, flexible on preferences. That wasn't in my notes. Finally, when I don't know how I should plan, I have to keep praying. Keep waiting patiently on the Lord's direction. I obey God's command and I pray for guidance, trusting God to work beyond my ability to make plans. Am I right? Do you know the feeling? You're trying to make plans and you're like, I don't know. Help me, God. And trusting His time. If I should simply for now just be still and do nothing. I trust you, God. So our planning needs to be focused on obedience to God, including patience and waiting on his timing. Our planning must be preceded by prayer, bathed in prayer, and our planning must absolutely be submissive to what God has revealed in Scripture. Scripture must form all the boundaries for our strategy. And in prayer and in counsel, we seek confirming direction from the Lord. So here we go in Acts, the scene is set. For the coming of the Spirit. Are you ready? (laughs) It's going to wait three weeks because Pastor Rich is preaching in my stead for the next two weeks, and then we'll come back to this uh, when my wife and I come back from vacation. I'm so excited to get to it the power of the Holy Spirit in this unique time and in a unique way, giving birth to the church. But the scene is set. When they were told to wait, they obeyed. Then the apostles and the others with them devoted themselves to prayer. Finally, while they waited, they prepared for the fulfillment of the promise as best they could by applying Scripture to their situation. There should be no doubt that these are patterns that we ought to follow. We must bathe our plans in prayer for clear direction from the Lord, consulting fellow believers who submit to the authority of God's Word, And above all, obeying what we already know is the will of God revealed in his word. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you loved us first. Because of the knowledge that is the truth that is taught in your word, I admit that I respond emotionally to knowing that I wouldn't have picked you if you hadn't picked me. We trust in your sovereign will. God, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the Holy Spirit helping us to understand it and to live by it. God, help us to depend on you and submit to you in prayer. Help us to seek counsel with one another and to listen well and to be helpful as well as submissive. Glorify yourself in your church, which indeed is growing in all people groups across this entire planet. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. God, we pray that you will glorify yourself through the body of believers that calls ourselves Branson Bible. Help us to be faithful to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray and for his glory. Amen.